0: This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to a special bonus edition of the Armchair Explorer, where I'll be sharing an episode from one of my favorite travel podcasts that I think you're gonna really love too. It's called Out There, It's amazing. And the host and producer of it, Willow Belden, will be introducing that herself in just a moment. But before then, I just want to say this is a new thing for me. It's the first time I've done this. And it's something that I hope I will do a couple of times a year with shows that I really like and respect that have a similar ethos and vibe to this show and that I think you're going to get a lot out of too. It's not going to take the place of our usual fortnightly episode. That's coming out next week as usual. So this is really just a bonus on top of that usual Armchair Explorer offering. So without further ado, I'm about to pass you over to Willow, the host and producer of the show, to tell you how she got started. It's a really cool story, and I think it's something that's going to resonate with a lot of you because it involves being fed up with your job, quitting it, and then running away into the mountains, which, as she says, is what any rational person would do in that situation. Quite right. So if you like this episode, please search up the Out There podcast on your favorite app and hit that subscribe button, or you can head over to outtherepodcast.com where there's a really cool playlist actually of their favorite episodes, which is a great place to get started. The social media is at Out There Podcasts across Instagram and Facebook. They post cool stuff and I definitely recommend following them. I do too. But anyway, enough of me. Here's Willow, and here's how sometimes following your gut and heading out into the hills can give you the clarity to find the life you really want.
1: I had been working for the NPR station in Wyoming. Um, I have, have a journalism background, and I I liked my job, um, and it did all the things that A job is supposed to do for you. I mean, it was—it felt like meaningful work. It was interesting. It was different every day. I liked my colleagues. All of that was great, but I didn't love it as much as I wanted to. And you always hear those stories about people who, who, where they talk about jumping out of bed in the morning and just being excited to dive into work. And I didn't really have that. And I thought, well, I. I want that. That sounds good. Um, and, but I didn't quite know what that would look like. I mean, people would always ask me, well, what would you rather be doing? And I kind of said, well, if I knew that, I'd already be doing it. Um, I don't know. And... Um, and so I I decided to do what any rational person would do, which was run away from everything for a while. And I decided to do a through hike of the Colorado Trail because um, I figured removing myself from normal life and getting outside and giving myself, you know, five weeks to just think about things and figure it out might be helpful. Um, and so... <laughs> So I did that, so I quit my job at the radio station and uh, and embarked on this through hike um, and I was not a backpacker at the time it was this was like I had been backpacking maybe two or three times ever in my life, and it was always for a night or two and never alone so this was uh, definitely outside of my wheelhouse, but it somehow felt very right so uh, so I, so I went and did this and I think i had I had this image in my mind i remember talking with a it was a friend of of the family actually who before i set off on my hike she said well what do you think is going to happen out there willow like are you you're just going to stand on a mountaintop and the clouds are going to part and you're going to know what you're going to do with the rest of your life like and and i kind of said well yeah I, that's what i'm that's what i'm hoping um, <laughs> like. Um, I mean, it sounded pretty silly when she said it that way But I did picture myself sort of walking along, you know, alpine ridgelines And thinking deep thoughts and making sense out of my life And none of that happened It was just, it was like, I, I think anyone who's done a through hike Or at least your first through hike, maybe it gets easier later But it's just, it's a lot of work and it's difficult And you've got blisters on your feet and there are mosquitoes and thunderstorms And there's all these things that you have to, you know, figure out And so there were no deep thoughts on the trail or almost none. Um, (laughs) But but it did do what it was supposed to do, ultimately, because by the time I got home, I remember thinking, okay, well, I don't want to go back to news reporting. I was very clear on that. And not only was I clear on that, but I was willing to admit it out loud, which I think was a, a big step for me. Because I had sort of always assumed, well, if you're going to be a journalist, you got to be a hard-hitting reporter, and you know, uh, be doing be doing fast-paced news. And I, I don't know, it just that seemed like the only respectable path to be taking. And um, so when I got back, I said, well, okay, but I don't want to do that. That's that's not for me anymore. But I did still want to keep telling stories, and I wanted to keep telling stories through audio. I love the medium. Um, I think it's very intimate and personal, and you can just convey a lot of feelings in a way that doesn't always come through in print. And so I said, okay, well, I want to, I want to do something that where I, you know, tell audio stories that go deeper and that get more personal and that really explore what makes us tick as humans and as a society, and why do we do the things we do, and you know, how do, how do we make sense of who we are and what our place is in the world. And and I wanted to, to use the outdoors as a lens for exploring those questions because I think oftentimes experiences that we have outdoors end up being quite transformational in one way or another and, and really do help provide clarity on some of life's big questions. One of the things that we are really trying to do with the show is expand the expand the idea the definition of what the outdoors is and our our definition of it is it's anything that's outside your front door and so some of our most interesting stories have involved the urban outdoors and take place on the streets of New York City it's not all you know wilderness feats um, but I think that makes it or I hope that makes it more relatable for a lot of people because. You know, let's face it, a lot of people live in cities and that's what's available on a day to day basis. And I think it all ties in with to sort of expand the idea of who the outdoors is for, because there's this common stereotype that, I mean, if you think of somebody who's outdoorsy, what comes to mind? It's probably a relatively young, athletic looking, able bodied white person, you know, like upper middle class on a mountaintop somewhere or, or, or like in a river or <laughs> whatever. And I think that's the narrative that we hear all the, you know, over and over again in, in outdoor media. And it's starting to change, but, but it certainly is a, a predominant narrative. And so one of our goals has been to make sure that we are more inclusive about what the outdoors is, who the outdoors is for, and who we're telling our stories for. Um, you know, to me, it's really important to, Make sure that we are telling stories for people who have been traditionally sidelined in outdoor media, not just telling stories about them um, because that's part of that's part of equity that's part of social justice I mean, are we going to fix all the world's problems all by ourselves no, absolutely not but <laughs> but storytelling does play a role, and if if people from all sorts of backgrounds can see themselves reflected in the stories we tell, it helps create a sense of, of, okay, the outdoors can be a place for me also. I can belong.
0: That is amazing. And I completely respect and admire that. The outdoors is a place for everyone. And it's more than that too. It's where we all come from. It's in our DNA, in our blood. It is where we all belong. That's also why we have to think carefully about how we can serve and protect it, which is what this episode is all about. Many of Out There's shows are first-person stories told directly by the individual, but this one's a little different in that it's an interview. And it's about a subject really close to my heart, national parks. I absolutely love them. I wrote a book about the 50 greatest national parks in the world. I think they're one of our best ideas and one of the highest expressions of democracy on the planet. A place of incredible awe and beauty that we all own and share equally. But they're not perfect. A lot of the land that we preserve here in the States and elsewhere all over the world was acquired through the expulsion of the native people that had lived there for thousands of years. So it wasn't ever really ours for the taking in the first place. And that's a huge injustice, of course. But it also now presents a kind of opportunity because one way that we can rectify that in part is by including indigenous practices passed down for millennia into the care and preservation of that land their land, which is as much a part of them as the mountains and rivers and lakes we all love and enjoy. Let's find a way to marry contemporary environmental science with native environmental wisdom. That's a new vision for conservation, a vision that might help carry us into the future, into that next epoch of our relationship with nature. It is Conservation 2.0.
1: Back in 1903, President Theodore Roosevelt stood on the rim of the Grand Canyon and called for the area to be protected from future development. Leave it as it is, he said. You cannot improve on it. Roosevelt went on to preserve 230 million acres of American land, which was unprecedented. Today's guest is the author of a book called Leave It As It Is. The book is about Roosevelt's novel brand of environmentalism and about the lessons we can take from that and apply to our world today. I have to admit, when the publisher first reached out to me about this book, I was skeptical. I was worried it would be yet another book written by a white man singing the praises of another white man. I worried that it would celebrate Roosevelt's environmental achievements without acknowledging that many of those achievements came at the expense of indigenous communities. But when I started to read David Gessner's book, I realized that he wasn't about to whitewash Roosevelt's dark past. He was going to praise Teddy for his groundbreaking accomplishments, but he was going to be equally harsh in his criticism about the genocide that made those accomplishments possible. And while he makes the case that we need a new Roosevelt who will fight just as fiercely as Teddy did for public lands, he also calls for that fight to look very different than it did back in the early 1900s. David Gessner joins us today to talk about his book and about what we and President-elect Biden might learn from the accomplishments and atrocities of the past.
0: This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com.
1: So in researching this book, you took a road trip of your own, kind of retracing Teddy's Steps. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, you know, I thought that would be, you know, as somebody who writes about place and thinks about place, I thought I've got to go to the places that mattered to him to be able to understand how, how we felt. And so I planned out this kind of massive road trip where I would head. I live in North Carolina and I'd head up the East Coast to uh, Washington D.C., then on to Roosevelt's house on Long Island, up to Harvard where Roosevelt went to school, and then head west. And I brought along my nephew Noah, who had just graduated from college at the University of North Carolina Asheville, and Noah kind of provides like a foil in the book because whereas I'm listening on tape while we're driving to Roosevelt speeches and books on tape about Roosevelt, He's kind of rolling his eyes. He's tired of this guy. And he said to me, you know, if I ever hear the phrase manly vigor again, I'm going to jump out of the car. Um, (laughs) So, you know, so he's a good, you know, good young person's perspective on the crazy aspect of Roosevelt. But we head out and we head to the Badlands. And he he wrote a note to me after the trip that said, you know, the trip through the Midwest was somewhat boring. But then we hit the crazy roller coaster and down into these wild shapes and i knew we were in the west and how exciting it was for him and the first morning we woke up and there were buffalo on the grass outside of our tent and that pretty much did it for him now he you know it was a, it was his first time crossing the mississippi and seeing the west and i of course thought back to my own i traveled west after right after college but my big journey west uh to live came when i was 30 and I just experienced testicular cancer living in my old hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts. And I joked and, you know, I said in my journal, I don't know what's worse, Worcester or cancer. But when I got better, when I, after I had radiation, I headed out to go to grad school in Colorado. And it was just the classic kind of like being reborn, you know, after as you're heading out to the mountains. And I slowly got healthy out there again and I really um reveled in it. So I compare that to an even grander example of that, which is Roosevelt, when he was 24, had this brutal stretch where he, his mother dies, and within 24 hours his his young wife dies. And he quits politics, and he heads out to the Badlands, and he kind of reinvents himself. He'd been kind of a, a feat Manhattanite, you know, um, and kind of a fop, actually, a fancy dresser. And suddenly he's this cowboy in the West and he you know, and his chest gets more burly and he gets stronger and he works with um he works on the ranch and he'll stay in he'll stay in the saddle for twenty four hours at one point. And so he kind of recreates himself as this Western figure and he always he always said, I never would have been president had I not gone west. So one of the one thing about the book is it it talks about the way that movement from east to west is part of the nat- national psyche.
1: You describe Roosevelt's accomplishments in the environmental realm as groundbreaking, um, as, as in he did things that were quite literally unheard of. Um, can you give us an example of one of those things?
2: Well, I mean, he, he, he had the good fortune of having the Antiquities Act handed to him in 1906, which meant he could save landscapes that, that no one had saved before. He, it didn't have to be a national park. It didn't have to go through Congress. So what he did, for example, was take an act that was originally thought to be used for um, antiquities, that is, Anasazi ruins and um, Native American uh, dwellings, And he expanded it to the point where it was saving whole landscapes around there. The most dramatic being Grand Canyon itself. He was very frustrated that people hadn't made it a national park. So he, in one fell swoop, declared it a national monument, almost a million acres. And what happened was, uh, that was the stepping stone to becoming a national park. So he, he, he would save large swaths of land, and he would think in terms of ecosystems in a way nobody really did. Uh, and it partly came from his, the fact he was a hunter, and he, you know, he liked having big carnivores in the world, but it also came from his training when he was young as a naturalist. Um, you know, when he was 14 years old, he didn't want to be president, he didn't want to be a soldier. He wanted to be like his hero, Charles Darwin, a working naturalist. You know, we think of parks as for human beings and as places where we derive pleasure, but he was able to think kind of beyond the human, beyond the anthropocentric, and think of wild places in a way that was more like what the way John Muir or Thoreau would think about those places than a politician would usually think about them.
1: the title, Leave It As It Is?
2: Well, um, I found that phrase to be coming very handy lately.
1: I think (laughs) You use it a lot in the uh, book.
2: (laughs) I think you... uh, I I used it when they tried to change the title of the book at Simon & Schuster, and I wrote them a nice, long, polite letter, but it ended Leave It As It Is, which they did. But it comes... (laughs) It originally comes from uh, what Roosevelt said... When he was standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon during his 1903 tour of the country, the first real uh, campaign tour by a sitting president, a whistle stop uh, campaign where he traveled 16,000 miles crisscrossing the country in a train. And he wrote this speech before he'd ever seen the Grand Canyon. And he arrived at the Grand Canyon in the morning, went up uh, on, on horseback to check it out, uh, it really impressed the people he was with by naming the birds and 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 plants, and then got to the edge and saw the giant purple bruise that is the grand canyon and I like to think he revised the speech he 'd written at that point point. Um, and he came back at noon and he and standing at the edge of the canyon with a crowd he was he was actually up on a hotel balcony he gave this great speech that I say is comparable to the Gettysburg Address, but for the environment, where he talks about saving the land. For your children's children, which has become a cliche, but wasn't a cliche then, and leaving it as it is, not building a hotel there, not marring it in any way, but saving the land for itself, and it's a real, you know, it's a real ringing speech. And um, as I said in the book, he's doing something that people don't get. Like what? We're not gonna, we're not gonna profit from this. No, we're gonna leave it as it is. And to me, that's the the crux of it. And that's why I chose it as the title of the book. Uh, At some time, at some points in time, we have to just leave things alone.
1: One of the things that you talk about in the book, though, is that this phrase, leave it as it is, is a little problematic, Um, maybe more than a little problematic, because it implies that these wild places that we're saving were empty and that no humans lived there. Um, but as you point out, uh, quite often in your book, that was not true. Um, so what was the reality?
2: Right, we have to question what, as it is, was right. Um, and what it was was a, it, you know, the the country was populated by indigenous people, and uh, a lot of the lands that became parks had been at the very least hunting grounds and, uh, and sometimes homelands of native people. So that twists it around to a degree and, and has to be looked at you know squarely in the eye, um, which I try to do. You know I try to not make any excuses for Roosevelt. I say if, if he deserves credit for being prescient and ahead of his time in terms of environmental, Issues. He deserves to be criticized and called out. Where he was actually not just of his time, but he was behind his time. He was a believer in manifest destiny, which at that point was half a century old. That he, when he was president, and so you know, he just he thought native people were in the way um, as as we charged west. So when he was saving these lands, sometimes. They weren't really his to save, so I call him out on that, and I don't make excuses for that. On the other hand, the reality is, it never was going to be a choice between letting it remain, you know, a native paradise um, versus a park. It was a park versus a developed, you know, it would probably be condos now, right? And it would have been settlers' homes then. So, there, it's a little more complicated than some of the. Very left-leaning uh, critics of this, and 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 understandably, Native peoples' criticisms of of the creation of parks and national monuments. Yes, there's very valid reason to criticize it. On the other hand, parks are an amazing thing that that stopped us from just paving over the the whole of it, you know, developing it at all. So, Wallace Stegner said that national parks were America's best idea, but I say. Maybe they're not our best idea, but they're still a pretty good one. And the focus of the book really is on Bears Ears National Monument, which is the first time five tribes, five um, Native tribes, used the Antiquities Act, which is how you create a national monument, to save a landscape that was sacred ground. So it's kind of a maturing and a better version of this, you know, park and national monument impulse. I say that Roosevelt created the rough draft, and there are flaws in that draft, and that we have the possibility now, and particularly now that we have a new president coming in, where we can take the best parts of that old ideal and use them in a new way that's more inclusive and that's more um Interactive, like it's uh, one of the things about Bear's Ears is the tribes want to use it for ceremony, for plant gathering. So it's less of a tourist, uh, you know, tourist-focused uh, enterprise than it is uh, an inclusive, larger enterprise.
1: Well, and this was going to be one of my questions, um, because you advocate very strongly in your book for saving wild spaces, and you also strongly criticize preserving these wild spaces at the expense of indigenous people. So how do we square those two? How do we move forward with what does environmentalism need to look like in order to not just protect wilderness, but also to be Fair and just and equitable?
2: Well, I'll, I'll focus in. I've talked about it somewhat vaguely, but I'll focus in on Bears Ears as an example since I do in the book. There's a cliche that it was kind of just thrown together at the last minute as Obama was leaving office. Uh, that's not true. Um, the uh, the tribes, uh, led by the Navajo, the Hopi, the Ute, the Zuni, and the Ute Mountain Ute, had been studying this landscape in southeast Utah and thinking about ways to preserve it. It had historically, thousand, for thousands of years, it was a meeting ground and a trading ground right below the Bear's Ears, which are these two buttes that are um, with a with a meadow between them. It was historically. Um, this great meeting place of tribes. It also was filled chock full of Anasazi dwellings. So it's this incredibly rich place. It's actually kind of the definition of the Antiquities Act. Uh, It embodies the Antiquities Act. So the tribes got together, and environmental groups were also involved, and they laid out this plan, and they wrote this amazing proposal that reads like a prose poem about the Phenology of bears' ears, and phenology is when things bud and when, when, uh, when things flower and when birds return. So they write this thing, and they put it together, and they bring it to Washington, and lo and behold, miraculously, it finds its way through. Now. It wasn't perfect because originally the tribes were supposed to have more power in directing the national monument and that kind of got stripped away and they became more advisory so that's not perfect but it was a step in the right direction and when i started to work on this book the first person i interviewed was regina lopez white skunk um, who was a ute mountain ute and a member of the bears ears commission and she said to me look we're not trying to relive historical trauma here uh, we 're not trying to say, "Give us our land back we 're trying to take a tool of the United States government and use it in a new way and the new way was for the benefit of the Native people in that area and so there 's an example of how you might um, how you might use the old tools in new ways, how you might create a new draft of of the old idea.
1: that you talk about in uh, in your book is that advances are precarious and that we can institute environmental protections one day, but there's no guarantee that those protections will stay in place um, under future administrations. How do you keep from becoming disillusioned?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's it's... You know, I say nothing, you know, it's like you're a beginning and beginner environmentalist if you think something's saved forever. There's really no forever, right? I mean, you, you save something and then it gets unsaved, as the example of Bears Ears proves. Um, I guess it's partly to do with this thing that you don't hear environmentalists talk about a lot because so much is policy, which is I spend a lot of time actually out in wild places. And one of the things people don't talk about that much is how fun that is. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> it's really enjoyable to be sitting around a fire, having a beer and looking up at the stars. It's really enjoyable to see how much vast space there still is. Uh, at the end of my book, for instance, I hitched a ride with a pilot named Bruce Gordon uh, he owns a small plane, and he takes environmentalists for flights over land they're trying to save. And I called up and said, "Are you going? You know, are you are you going on any flights? Can I hitch a ride?" And I took a giant lap of Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, parts of Utah, and part of that flight was super depressing, seeing trees killed by beetle kill or fires, uh, seeing the fracking in Wyoming, but there were vast spaces and long time periods where you'd be going over just trees and mountains and rivers and lakes, and you'd realize that the American West still has all this space, this wild space, despite everything. And so that to me is exciting. That kind of is a counterbalance to the dismal daily drip of bad environ news.
1: about your shift personally from writing, from being a nature writer to being an advocate. Um, what has that been like? It's sort of this, this change from, from documenting to, to advocacy.
2: I got to say, it's not the most natural fit in the world, but the more I've done it, you know, the more momentum I get. And I see how, I mean, one of the things about Roosevelt is a model as you get to see how he engages different aspects of his personality. This is a guy who could spend a week alone out in in nature. This is a guy in the middle of the 1903 re-election tour, goes off in Yellowstone on his own, leaving Secret Service behind, leaving everybody behind, and spends a day counting and studying elk. And yet, he's the same person who the next day is giving a rousing speech, um, you know, to to hundreds of people. So, it's about like being able to engage parts of you. Uh, and I guess another kind of charismatic leader, Churchill was very fond of the phrase, a change is as good as a rest. So I really hold close to that, that I don't want to give up my time in the wild. I don't want to give up um, my teaching. I don't want to give up friends, but I do want to engage that part of me that tries to roust other people to action.
1: What are you hoping readers will take away from your book?
2: Well, that's a good question. It's like, obviously, I'm trying to rally them to the idea of, of public lands, and I'm trying to awaken them to climate change, which sounds obvious enough, right? We, we, have, we heard so many things about climate change, but I still feel like it has not the fight has not been articulated well because the enemy is so confusing. It's not like, you know, if somebody builds a giant trophy house on a piece of land you love, you hate the trophy house and you 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 know you rail against that. This is so much more confusing because we're also fighting ourselves and our own excessive habits and our human nature, right? Human nature, it's great to say leave it as it is, and I believe in it, but human nature wants more and is hungry for more. You know, I quote my old professor, Red Sonner, we humans are an elsewhere. We're always jumping ahead. How do we control that? You know, how do we control that impulse? Because if we don't, we'll just keep swallowing up the earth. Like a lot of people, I see some small lessons in what's happened during the pandemic in terms of doing with less and with exploring our own backyards and not flying and and running around as much. So I think that's something I want people to take away. I kind of get toward that. Obviously, I wrote it before the pandemic, but I'm already talking about those kind of thoreau ideals of being happy with less instead of craving more. So there's that. And there's also just kind of the spirit of Roosevelt. I mean, I think we... Uh, you know, he said, reading for me is like a disease. You know, he, he read a book a night at one point in his life. He was so hungry to read. And I feel, having had a president who doesn't read books as we have recently, in a country that doesn't really read as much anymore, how vital reading can be and how it can change behavior. There's a moment, for instance, uh, that I love um, where Roosevelt has just moved out to the Badlands, and he's got his ranch, and boat thieves come along and steal his his little boat, and he and his ranch hands hustle to build a boat to go chase them down. And it's the middle of winter, the um, the the river, the Little Missouri, is chock full of ice, um, and they they jump in the boat. But then he runs back to the house and he grabs Anna Karenina, and while they're chasing down these boat thieves that they eventually catch he reads so you know, I, I love this idea of you know, somebody who's living life and engaging at all these multiple levels um, and it's exciting for me and I think we can still imagine ourselves having kind of heroic uh, lives when we, when we read about somebody doing stuff like that so hopefully um, we catch a little of that spirit and energy mm,
1: I love that what lessons would you hope that president elect biden might take from teddy roosevelt
2: well you know um, by the end of roosevelt's political career when he comes back and he runs as a bull moose candidate he's he has a platform that would have made bernie blush it's so far left you know it's and it anticipates so many of the changes And some of of the policies that his distant cousin FDR is going to put in place 20 years later. Um, But in the end, though his progressive impulse was, you know, he kept moving leftward, but he also had a really good common touch, and he also believed in kind of a middle path. He, He thought of it as walking along a ridge, a ridge line. And on the one hand, were what he called the elite criminal class. Um, he, he really didn't like success for success' sake. And, and you know, that comes out in his attacks on the trusts, on the railroads, on the, you know, he was called a traitor to his class. On the other side, he didn't like the dogmatic, the um, those who just put forward such idealistic platforms and, and ideas that had no chance of practically succeeding. So, I would say that that to me, you know, as I get older, maybe i'm maybe my radical is is mellowing out a little bit, but it's walking that path and being able to um abhor you know the the elite criminal class, but also not be suckered into the the other side or not let the other side the dogmatically in this case you know we would probably compare it with the the most woke voices, right. So I think Biden's going to be good at walking that middle path. And that's exciting to me. And the other thing that Roosevelt was great at was following these things that he was passionate about without looking at the polls. I mean, he, part of his appeal was just saying this, you know, conservation is the classic example. He, he led the public. Um, it didn't lead him. He didn't follow their ideas or their, um, You know their opinions. He he said, "This is my vision," and others follow.
1: Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me.
2: Yeah, thank you, Willa, for thinking of calling.
1: Gessner is the author of Leave It As It Is, a journey through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. We have a link to the book on our website, outtherepodcast.com. This interview was edited by Anne Margaret Warner.